0: Last week, we started out by looking at the Acts 2, 42 to 47 passage. And this is the defining what the church is, what characterizes the church passage. So uh, let me just read that from the top there. They were continually, they, of course, is the uh, new believers, the brand new believers who heard Peter's sermon, who were pierced to the heart, who understood the gospel and who believed and who were saved, who were converted. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And last Sunday we looked at the breaking of bread and we saw that it's not only sharing meals together, but it's also partaking together of the Lord's Supper. So we celebrated communion as well last week. Let me just quickly review those points. There's really five points why we celebrate communion. First, we celebrate communion because we are instructed to, we are told to by Jesus, by instruction, and by example. And then, secondly, we do it in remembrance of him. We do it to remember Jesus Christ and what he did always remember, to continually remember him and that holds us in fellowship with him. You know, it's something I didn't point out last week, but it's interesting that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me while he was still with them, before he had been crucified. And then third, we celebrate communion, or we break bread together to keep us anchored to a very fundamental of our faith, and that is Jesus' death and resurrection. And so it holds us to our foundation. And then the fourth point was that it holds us together. It holds us together as a body of believers. And that's when we commune together as a church body, and there's a direct connection with our fellowship with each other and our fellowship to God. And then the last point was in doing that, in celebrating the Lord's Supper, His death and resurrection and remembering it, we also proclaim it. We declare it. We declare it until he comes. So we're still declaring it in 2019, and we will continue to declare it until he comes, until he returns. So today then, I want to look at uh, the aspect of fellowship. I think everyone likes the idea of fellowship, the concept of fellowship, and I think everybody would agree that fellowship is a very important part of the church. I mean, if you've been to churches anywhere, especially in western countries, in the U.S., and they have whole rooms that are dedicated to fellowship in fact our church when you walk in the front door you go straight ahead what's the first room you come to it's called the fellowship hall and is there a sign above it anyway it's called the fellowship hall and it's got couches and tables and chairs and it's kind of comfortable and that's where all the activity you know takes place and people talk and interact and things and then of course at mcc every other saturday we have icf which is International Christian Fellowship. And then a lot of MCC members are members also of BSF, which is Bible Study Fellowship. So in the church world, you cannot get away from the term fellowship. And even the world understands fellowship. I mean, it's in the dictionaries. It's in regular English dictionaries. Friendly association, companionship. Company of equals, I like that one, or friends community of interest, activity, feelings. I'm not sure which dictionary that was. Or experience. And then a group of people meeting to pursue a shared interest or aim. And that's the secular definition. Those are the, just the regular English dictionaries. And so everybody understands what fellowship is and what it means to connect with people. And we also know that in the world we live in today, And I would think probably since the Tower of Babel, there has never been so much opportunity to connect with people. I mean, we have instant mass communication, global satellite TV, we have internet accessible in almost every corner of the world. We have Skype, we've got Zoom. When I first came to Japan, it cost me $3 a minute to call home. I mean, you made a list of the things you wanted to talk about and then you went through them real quick. (laughs) And I remember when it came down to 10 yen a minute and that was a telephone. And now I can talk for free for hours to my parents and see them and it's free anywhere in the world. I saw some uh, statistics yesterday. There's over 330 million active Twitter users in the world. That's more than the population of the US. We don't know whether they're all legitimate, but uh, even so, that's a lot of people. And uh, this one is interesting. As of the first quarter of this year, Facebook had 2.8 billion, that's billion with a B, monthly users, people who use it at least once a month worldwide. And just like communication devices, there's over, there's another billion, 2.5 billion smartphone users in the world. At smartphone. Basic mobile phones? I was shocked. The user base is expected just for regular mobile phones to pass five billion this year. The world population as of last month was estimated to be 7.7 billion, which means that 65% of the people in the world have personal communication devices. So the world has never been more connected. And ironically, the world has never been more disconnected. We've never been more disconnected from each other. I think it's especially evident to us in developed countries who've had the technology longer. We can see the trend. And those of us who live in Metro Tokyo, you know, I mean, if you landed from Mars and saw this city, the metriary of 30 million people, people crammed together on trains, people living in these you know, huge dunchies and just all side by side, you'd wonder how on Earth, I don't mean that as a pun, but I mean how on Earth, if you came from Mars, <laughs> could you possibly be lonely in a situation like this? And yet, here we are together, so many people together, all alone. <laughs> I took that picture, that's a, that's a picture in Bamiyan. <laughs> and uh, those girls are together, but I don't think that we would describe them as having fellowship. And that is not a rare scene. That is not a rare scene. We see families, mother, father, two kids, everyone for the whole time they're in the restaurant buried in their smartphones. And it seems like there's something very wrong with this picture, in there, and it's not just what we see here. I mean, sociologists, anthropologists are getting very worried about what's happening to society. I mean, they're they're starting to do real research on it and starting to write about it. And there's a lot of concern for uh, human fellowship, human interaction, and the thing is, the church is not immune. The church is not immune to this. We live in this fallen world. We interact with it. We're influenced by it. We're shaped by our own cultures. We use the same technologies and we're susceptible to the same dysfunction. Even within the church body, if we copy the world and its ways, we get the world's dysfunction. If we follow the truth of God and his word, we know that we get joy and blessing, which is what the world does not know. And we also know that the scripture has a lot to say about relationships. We know right from the beginning of Genesis that God made man to be a social creature. God created, 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 created. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then man, and it was very good. And then It was not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so he created a helper and then he told them to be fruitful and multiply. And then we follow it through the community of the people of Israel. It was a community of people. And in the same way, the church is a community. You know, as I was preparing for this, I uh, I thought, boy, you know, this is an extremely broad topic and it's also a very important one. We already touched a little bit on it last week. But then I started to realize that, you know, the fellowship of the church, it touches every aspect of church life. There's no aspect of the church life that isn't somehow integrated with fellowship. It really is the functioning of the church body together. And I also realized there's no way to do this justice in one message. So I'll give you a warning right now. I'm only going to be able to do half of this and I'm going to have to carry it over until next week. So let's get started on it today, then we'll try to finish it off next week. You see you have five points in the bulletin. I think I'm only gonna get to four today, and then we'll have to save four for next week. Earlier this week, when I was preparing for this, I pulled out two books that I own, that I've read, and I remember both of those books had a reference to fellowship. One was by a missionary to China over 100 years ago back in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. And the other was by a pastor from Uganda. If you know your history of Africa and Uganda, he lived through that horrific reign of Idi Amin. But these two books, two different eras, two different countries, certainly two different cultures, two very different parts of the world, but the same testimonial, the same testimonial, the same recounting of how God worked in the church body, the same inner struggles that they faced as a church, the same victory, the same blessing, the same outcome, and the same spiritual fruit. And as I was rereading these parts of these books, The one from Uganda especially, it it really rocked me this time reading it. And I admit, I bought that book initially because it looked pretty intriguing. There was a lot of intrigue and suspense in it, and it certainly is that. I mean, it's more gripping and suspenseful than I even thought it would be. It's, It's actually not a book for the faint of heart. But what really hit me this time was not the drama, but the fellowship of the church leaders the fellowship of the church leaders, the authenticity of it, the depth and the biblical reality of their fellowship. And not only that, but the cost of that fellowship, the humility that it required, the truth telling that it required and the sacrificial love that it required. But then there was also the incredible and undeniable spiritual fruit that came from that fellowship. And it impacted me and it convicted me. And I, I thought, you know, I can't really get up here and preach about fellowship. Realizing how much I have to learn about it from those African brothers 50 years ago. So I just pray that I'll be able to convey some of these things effectively. So let's go back to our passage here. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we see right there, I mean, fellowship is already... I mean, that is the fellowship. Fellowship is in every aspect of those activities that they're doing, including fellowship. Fellowship is part of the fellowship. So that what comes out clearly, if you look at the uh, highlights there, what comes out clearly is all the things that they did, they did together. And the whole concept of together, 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 is really emphasized in this passage. I don't think it's by accident. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the Apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And that shows, if anything else, that shows that their conversions made a very real and radical and revolutionary change in their lives. It's a heart level change. And it's more than just simply being together. It's it's what they did together and what they did for each other. So it says day by day with one mind, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So, let's stop there. And let's use this passage, kind of like last week. We'll use this passage as kind of a springboard. And uh, let me kind of start on this list of what I see as eight characteristics of true fellowship in the church. And I'll just say right now, there's no way that this is gonna be comprehensive. And we really can't go too deeply into most of these things. But the first characteristic of fellowship, true fellowship, is being together, being together. I mean, that is so self-evident we probably shouldn't even have to mention it. But it's, it's so heavily emphasized that we really can't avoid it, we can't get around that. And I think the emphasis, like I said, is there for a purpose, it's there for a reason, because. It's not just in the world, it's not just in society at large, but it's also in the church that this is a major area of breakdown. I remember hearing a statistic a few years ago, and I wish I could find this exact source, but in the United States, on any given Sunday, only about 60% of churchgoers, that's self-identified churchgoers, are actually in church. If you take a snapshot of U.S. churches on any given Sunday, about 60% of churchgoers, not Americans, but churchgoers, will be in church. And I just looked at a a 2017 article and uh, there was a study where uh, they interviewed a whole bunch of self-identified Christians and the majority, the majority said they did not belong to a local church. And they attended church less than once a month. And you think, there's something wrong with that picture. And it seems like many Christians, for for whatever reason, I mean there's a variety of reasons, but so many Christians spend only kind of minimal time with Christian brothers and sisters. And even if they do attend church regularly, it's usually only for the worship service, and that's it. I've been in churches where, I mean, People make a beeline for the door as soon as the benediction's given. I mean, chung. and I found that being different places and being in many different churches, you can tell a lot about a church by three things. You can tell a lot about a church by what is preached, whether it's biblical. You can tell a lot about a church by how the people worship, not by how the worship band performs, but by how the congregation worships. And, you can tell a lot about a church by what happens after the service is over. And I know, personally, many Christians who no longer believe that they need the church, need the body. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about people who want to attend but can't, for whatever reason, because of health, because of logistical reasons, I'm talking about those who, by choice, have withdrawn from the body or keep it at arm's length or just have become indifferent to it. People leave the church for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's the fault of the person leaving. Sometimes it's the church's fault. Sometimes there's fault on both sides. And it's not my purpose here to analyze why people leave or what, what the reasons are for pulling out only to say, only to emphasize that being together is what is important. It's not just important, it's crucial. Watching sermons on YouTube, even by John MacArthur, I mean, the best Bible teachers, I mean, that's not church. And neither is joining (laughs) virtualchurch.com, which which is a real website. It's the face-to-face Fellowship of the body, that's essential. Not Facebook or Line. Those do not replace fellowship. You know, the New Testament really has no concept or no example of a legitimately unchurched Christian. The concept doesn't exist. Maybe if they're in prison, or maybe if they're exiled on some small island in the Mediterranean. But you know what's interesting? Even like when Peter was in prison, when he got out of prison, the minute he got out of prison, he went straight to the church. He went straight to the body. And yeah, you know the analogies, don't you? The why church is important analogies. Logs burning in a fire. If you have a pile of logs burning, The flame is bright. If you pull one log out, the flame on that log will die out pretty quickly. And it'll smolder for a while, but it'll eventually go cold. And then you think of the analogy of the the security of the animals, you know, a herd of animals. There's security in being in the herd, especially if you're on the inside. But it's those that get separated from the herd, those are the most vulnerable ones. They're a much easier target. And of course, you know, 1 Peter 5 says that our enemy, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's not playing around. Minoter says it many times, spiritual warfare is very real, Mm -hmm. and it's true. And that's why some of the devil's most common strategies are to pull the sheep away from the flock, or to get into the flock and break it up or divide it. Anyway, what what is it that draws us together? Here's our second point. True fellowship is a matter of the heart. It's a heart matter. In fact, I think it'd probably be more accurate to say it is a changed heart matter. It's a redeemed heart matter. At the end of verse 46, if you remember it, it says that they did their fellowship. They interacted with each other with gladness and sincerity of heart. You don't get the sense from this passage that these guys in Acts, or anyone in that group of early believers in Acts here, had to tell them, okay guys, now that you've come to believe in Jesus, you have to go to church. Okay, You have to go listen to the apostles' teaching at least once a week. In the temple and break bread no less than once a month and uh, because there's no building yet you probably need to find someone who's willing to open their home and then do it there oh yeah and it would be a good idea to uh, go to permitting once in a while too I mean are you kidding they were continually they were continually I mean they had come to know the God of Israel they had come to know their God for real, for real. Not just here, but here. And they had been redeemed by the Messiah that they had been part of crucifying. And they were forgiven. They were forgiven for that. And it didn't matter that Rome was still ruling. They were citizens of God's kingdom. And not just citizens. They were children. They were children of God himself, which means that now they were truly brothers and sisters with each other. And the thought of people joining the church at that time out of obligation or out of duty or under compulsion would have been bizarre. It would have been ridiculous. It would have been obvious to everybody if somebody did that that you're completely missing the point here. And it certainly would not have been considered to be true fellowship. So I'm not. By any way, it's suggesting that we all quit our jobs and move to Kichijoji and, you know, be at the church every day. And that's not my point. We need to be where God has placed us, in our families, in our work. But there's still the matter of the heart when it comes to the body of believers, when it comes to the fellowship with our brothers and sisters. A lot of you remember our former pastor, Jerry. Jerry Earhart, and um, you know he gave his testimony a few times, but I remember him personally just telling me we were just talking one day, and he told me when he first became a Christian when he was 22. And he had actually grown up in not just the church; he grew up in churches every Sunday, Lutheran Sunday School, and then Catholic Mass. But when he really came to Jesus Christ. When he was 22, he says three things immediately happened to him. One was the scripture just came alive. It just came alive. He said the words just jumped off the page. He says it was, it was written to me. And the other thing is, and those of you who know Jerry know that he is he's kind of, you know, reserved, shy type of person, very soft spoken. But he said he suddenly. He had to tell others what happened. He had to tell others. The other thing was, is even though he was shy, he suddenly wanted to be with other Christians. He wanted to be at church. Those things were put in his heart. They were spiritual realities for him. And what gets put in our heart when we come to Jesus Christ in faith? One major thing is love. Love. And that actually is our third point here. A pastor friend of mine back in Canada, he's got a great Canadian sense of humor. And he's a pastor. He put this up on Facebook about three days ago. And I thought, wow. If you, you saw that picture, that was in the news last month. And that was that queue that line of people waiting to get to the summit of mount everest and you know that so far this year 9 people have died trying and at least in this line at least 2 of these group died on this trek if you really want to be somewhere you'll do what it takes to get there you know it doesn't matter really what we say it doesn't even really matter what we believe to be true But what really matters to us, what's really important to us, is evidenced by what we do and where we expend our effort and where we invest our time. That's what reveals what's truly important to us. So, with enough will, I think you can make it to church. Why would he put that up as a pastor? Obviously, he's concerned for Some of the people in his congregation, I'm sure, where's their heart? Where's their heart at? What has their heart? True fellowship is rooted in love. It's rooted in brotherly, agape love. And that is the love that is the self-giving, the self-sacrificing, the decisive, the, the love of the will. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You know, the word love does not appear in this particular Acts passage, but it is definitely implied. Love is really the essential ingredient in fellowship. It's the fuel of true fellowship. And in fact, it's really the defining characteristic of the church. Jesus told his disciples the night before he went to the cross, he told them no less than five times to love one another just as he had loved them. And the love that the disciples would have for one another would be the evidence of their fellowship, their fellowship with Jesus Christ and their fellowship with each other. It would be a testimony to the world. So, in other words then, tangible love, active love for each other is an essential part of discipleship and it's an essential part of true fellowship. And it's not only affection or warm, sentimental feelings for each other. I mean, it can certainly include that. But almost every reference to Christian love and fellowship is the word agape. Self-giving, self-sacrificing. Active love. A lot of people, they want to be connected with the church body because it's full of nice people and accepting people, but that's not the kind of love that will endure, that will endure difficulties that are sure to come, that will endure spiritual battles and relational challenges and conflicts that happen in every body of believers. So the true love that comes from God is such an essential part of church fellowship for the Apostle John. Just, let me just read a couple things from 1 John, because these are very, very direct. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verses 19 and 20, same chapter. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And then back in chapter three, it says, we know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Doesn't get much starker than that, does it? There's not a lot of nuance. John is not a nuanced writer. He is very black and white. He's very binary. He doesn't leave really much wiggle room. And he's basically saying that if we do not have love, for our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, then there's a fair question if we really even have the life of God in us. Have we been genuinely reborn? For those who don't belong to God, there cannot be true, genuine fellowship in the church body. We welcome everyone to our church but only those who belong to Jesus Christ through faith, who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, who've been reborn, are the church. And that's why we saw last week, saved. Being saved is still the only way of joining the church. But otherwise, there's no true cohesiveness. There's no true bond. If we really love each other, we will want to be together. We'll want to be with each other. And if we're not with each other, it's hard to actually meaningfully love each other. And that brings us to our fourth point, and that is, and this will be the last point for today, our oneness in Christ. True fellowship is based on our oneness as a body. And we saw this last week too. The fact that we were made into one by Christ to be his body where he is the head. And this is all about unity. True unity is a huge part of true fellowship. We can go back to uh, Acts 2 verse 46, day by day continuing with one mind. And then last week we saw that Jesus' prayer for all his future disciples was that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's our unity. And then, we also looked last week back at the Ephesians 4 passage, starts out, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then the seven ones, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. And then I'm gonna add this one in here. This is Philippians from Philippians 2. Therefore, Paul has a lot of therefores. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, don't miss that, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. I think it especially comes out here. But you have to notice that true fellowship is not something that just happens automatically. It doesn't just happen no matter what we do or don't do. We do have new hearts and new natures, that's true. But we still live in fleshly bodies and we still live in a fallen world and a fallen society. So we need to be active as believers. For one thing, because we carry the fallen nature, we have to continually put it to death. We have to continually put off the old and put on the new. And yes, Jesus did pray that we would be one in each other and in Him, but He also commanded five times to love one another. In fact, Paul says we do have unity in the spirit, but we have to preserve. We have to be diligent to preserve that unity. And then the Philippians passage, there's several directives. Be, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, and then be united, to be united in spirit. And by the way, that is a small S. Okay, which means that with our own spirits we are united. And then intent on one purpose. And then Peter, let's go to Peter just for a second. Back to this I uh, quoted this earlier. 1 Peter one twenty two, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, here's the imperative. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again. So affirming a truth, and then giving a clear imperative. I'm going to go to this one here. This is, uh, this is from 2 Peter, and I'll just read it through quickly. I'll just kind of skim through it. Seeing that, okay, here's the truth, or here's what he's declaring. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything we need. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us, he granted to us, his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may, you may, that's us, become partakers in the divine nature, of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Okay, here's the imperative. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. And then he goes through supply, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. So Paul has the same patterns. If you look at his epistles like Ephesians, chapter 1, 2, and 3, this is what God has done. This is what Christ has made possible for you. And then chapter 4, 5, 6, this is how you live it out. This is what it looks like. So it's the same thing, I think, with our fellowship. Fellowship. We've been granted everything we need for true and wonderful and sweet fellowship. And I think at MCC we have a lot of it, I really do. This is not, I'm just not standing up here trying to prod everyone or nag everyone. I mean, I love the fellowship in our church, but I also realize we have a long way to grow. I have a long way to grow in it. So just to be very practical again, it it is a heart matter. Where are we at with our hearts? What has our hearts? How important is our fellowship to us? You know, Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I could just kind of uh, extend that a little bit, take a little liberty, but I think you could say too as a variation, where our heart is, we will be also. Where our heart is, we'll get there will be there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for granting to us, for giving to us everything we need, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, you've granted to us everything through Christ His work is finished, Lord. You've given us Your Spirit. Lord, help us as a church to day by day, week by week, month by month, to yield to the Holy Spirit and help us to grow in love for You, Lord, that we would want to be in fellowship with You. And with that, we would grow in our fellowship for one another. And Lord, that we would not as Hebrews says, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some, but that we would encourage one another and stimulate one another toward love and good deeds. So Lord, help us to be more toward the Acts 2 heart in that church. Thank you for this body. Lord, thank you for the blessings that you've given us and thank you for the blessings that it is to each of us. Lord, we want to bless each other. And we want to glorify and thank you. Thank you for your many, many blessings to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.